Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. Our team of scientists turned journalists use this podcast to share some of the most interesting research we've discovered in our day-to-day. I'm joined today by my colleagues Laura Lansdowne, Molly Campbell and Holly Large. How are we all doing? Good, thank you. Pretty good, yeah. I am well, thank you. Great stuff. Uh, Today's podcast is focusing on a really interesting issue that of the ethics of genetic testing. Now, this is an area that's advanced hugely in the last few years, and we're now kind of in the early stages of consumers having the ability to access their own genetic data cheaply and quickly, and that enables them, following on from that, to learn about their predisposed risk to certain conditions from that data. And as we'll hear, as we'll hear today, that throws up a host of complicated issues, from issues of consent that data security, and generally how to reconcile a medical model that's focused on the individual with new information that can have impacts beyond a single patient on their children and even their grandchildren. Now, Holly, you recently published a great series of articles on this topic, which we'll be able to link in this podcast. Uh, they, They kind of touch on all these different aspects. So how did you go about approaching this topic when you're writing those articles? I mean, I was quite um, lucky. I had a background in this from uni. Um, I did my dissertation on this kind of topic. It was looking into some of um, broadcast media representations of ethical issues. So I kind of went into it having a bit of previous knowledge. Um, But going into actually writing this, I kind of used a bit of that. But also a lot has changed in the past few years. Um, So it was kind of a case of seeing what literature was out there and then also seeing, you know, who was who was writing who was writing that kind of stuff um and then seeing if I could get interviews with them really which uh, given the pandemic was a little bit of a struggle um but actually worked out quite well and I got to speak to some really interesting people um and in this case it's kind of good to also look at a lot of studies that look at public opinion of this sort of thing because that is really what helps you get into the crux of the issues when it comes to um you know taking on looking at ethical issues in genetic testing oh it's it's such a fascinating topic but maybe we should start off by kind of defining what genetic testing means what are, what are the different types of, of testing Holly that, that people can get through their clinician um well I mean yeah for, you have to look at it from a clinical perspective first of all because a direct consumer genetic testing is a whole other kettle of fish um so you can have diagnostic testing and this is as in simple terms it's just whether you're confirming or ruling out a genetic disease so um for example you can have a carrier type analysis that would help uh, diagnose someone who has down syndrome um, then you can have predictive and um, pre-symptomatic testing so predictive testing is kind of giving you an idea of the risk that you have of developing a certain disease um, and lots of people will have heard through angelina jolie's story of the BRCA genes and the variations that you can get in those that give you a high risk of developing breast or ovarian cancer and then you can also have carrier testing um, and this is i mean the most common example that people would have heard of is for testing for things like cystic fibrosis um, so for autosomal recessive conditions uh, where you know if people are looking to have children they want to make sure if they're carrying something or not that they could possibly pass on to their child so there's all these different types of, of testing that, that yeah. people would, would get. Where, where do you think the, the biggest ethical issues pop up amongst those? Um, 
I mean, personally, I would say it's the predictive testing. So, for example, I'll just bring up BRCA again. Uh, when they were first, or lots of people were investigating the different variations that could lead to breast and ovarian cancer. Um, and there was one particular one where they said, yep, this will put you at high risk. And then a few years later, they then, well, it was more than a few years later, but they then, re- they, um, then carried on researching this particular variation and they determined that actually it didn't put people at high risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, and then you kind of have to consider one of the main ethical issues, which is consent. So for the people who got tested and told they had a high risk of, of breast and ovarian cancer, do you then go back to those people and tell them that actually they don't? And you have to establish early on whether they consented to that particular change or whether they want to hear about future research in that variation that they were tested for. Mm-hmm. Just to touch on that, Holly, as well, I guess being given that information that like you could potentially take quite I guess make significant changes exactly, or yeah. or you know the implications of having that information and then to you know find out that it potentially now there isn't an issue um that's like a big thing I guess yeah definitely uh, you know because people can go particularly in this case people can have mastectomies or oophorectomies mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not just lifestyle changes that people make it is it's big significant changes health. yeah yeah so is there is there kind of a settled approach amongst doctors and clinicians on the issue of consent and, and when they should update patients or is it still really quite debated it's at the moment uh, I mean I think flexible is the best word well I say that is it's not there are guidelines and that depends on where you are in the world. There's definite differences between the UK and the US because obviously in the UK we have the benefit of having the NHS, which tends to take a standardised approach to things. But even within that, there is variation. Um, and the whole point, um, when I was speaking to Laura Hercher for these articles, she was saying that, you know, the, optimally consent will be a flexible process. And that's basically to establish whether the person wants to test in the first place and also the fact that they also have the right to say no um, to testing it's that's one of the main ethical issues is that people kind of assume that lots of people do want to be tested and and, and they don't want to be um mm-hmm. I've forgotten where I was going with that to be honest <laughs> um, I was going to touch on that actually because obviously one way of looking at it is obviously they inform you that you've got a specific variant that gives you a higher risk of developing something and then maybe you know in future they realize that there isn't that association there and actually you know they have to inform you but also the other way around like you could potentially be tested for a disease and they're looking for specific variants that are related to that disease Um, and you could come back but you haven't got any of those but then for example in future I guess they may be able to just they may discover more variants related to that disease that they were unaware of so I guess there's also you've got to tie into the consent process whether you then recontact that person to get them retest or you're allowed to look at that again to see whether these newly identified variants are there because obviously that could have implications too. Yeah and that's not necessarily established in clinical practice yet there are guidelines and that's why something like the 100,000 Genomes Project exists because they were trying to explore okay what's the best way to establish a consent process and they take into consideration things like that but in terms of what's actually in clinical practice because this is such a new field in a way um, there's not much there and also it is difficult because 
there's a very blurred line between doing clinical genomic testing and also genomic testing in the purposes of research and what might suit a research study doesn't necessarily suit clinical practice and that's why I think a lot of these things are decided on a case-by-case basis um, because it kind of has to suit the kind of testing that they're doing if that makes sense. One of the the parts of your pieces Holly that really jumped out at me was talking about uh, incidental findings Mm -hmm. so as I gather it these are findings which aren't necessarily what a patient might have been asking to be tested for or what was being actively sought after in in the process of testing. But I presume with some kinds of genetic testing, if a whole genome, for example, is being analysed, these other kind of uh, risk variants might be thrown up. Does that kind of complicate things further? Yes, definitely. So quite often, well, first of all, there's a difference between secondary and incidental findings. Like lots of people use them um, interchangeably, um, but an incidental finding is something say that you didn't expect to come across um, but you couldn't help but see whereas a secondary finding is something that wasn't the main goal of the test but that was still actively sought I think that's really important for people to understand but we would obviously talk we were obviously talking about incidental findings and that does complicate things because the person might want to know about a specific test but say they incidentally um, so for example if you're doing a carrier type analysis you won't be able to help but see a particular piece of damage to a chromosome. And then it's a matter of, okay, well, does that person or their parents, say if it's prenatal testing, want to know about that particular thing? So it it definitely does complicate the process. In addition to these sort of clinical-led tests, you've mentioned briefly, Holly, that uh, direct-to-consumer tests are becoming much more common as well. And Molly, I think you have probably the most experienced out of any of us with these kind of tests. What What's your background with these tests? Yep, so um, before diving into that, I think maybe it's just important to differentiate between sort of a clinical approach to genetic testing and um, sort of outline exactly what direct consumer genetic testing is. Um, so a clinical genetic test is typically ordered by a physician or a healthcare professional. Um, for the various reasons that Holly described in a clinical context. Now, because the cost of genome sequencing has reduced massively over recent years, what we're seeing is a number of companies um, that are actually utilising these technologies and providing a paid service to consumers to purchase this information that they might not necessarily be able to access unless they did visit a clinician and genetic testing was advised. So what this does is it essentially provides people of a variety of different backgrounds from all walks of life with the ability to access information on their molecular makeup, um, which poses sort of various different issues. Um, First of all, it's important to consider does that individual have a knowledge of genetics, um, of, you know, sort of standard scientific principles? Um, If so, obviously that's beneficial. If not, then how do we approach delivering that information? Um, So that is sort of a big issue with direct consumer genetic testing. So my experience is I have undergone two different forms of genetic testing. Um, The first form was with a company that I shall not name um, 
because I don't, I want to make it explicit that I don't endorse uh, purchasing direct consumer genetic tests. Um, but the first test that I underwent was by a company that basically looks at epigenetics. Um, so that is distinguishable from um, looking at the genetic code in the sense that epigenetics essentially means on top of. Um, so what this looks at is how the environment and your lifestyle impact the sort of switching on and switching off of specific genes, which is epigenetics. Um, the company that uses this approach takes this information via a saliva sample, uh, runs the sequencing, and essentially provides you with a biological age. So what that means is chronologically, at the time that I underwent the test, I was 23 years old. And the company was essentially looking at whether my cellular makeup reflects that age. How old are my cells? Um, how have my lifestyle habits impacted sort of the regulation of specific genes? So that was one genetic test that I underwent. And whoa, whoa, recently, whoa, whoa, whoa. What was let's the, go. What were the results? That's what I want to know. How old are you genetically? <laughs> highly disappointed um, because after coming out of uni a couple of years ago, I made some big lifestyle changes, um, you know, classic adopted a bit more of an exercise regimen I started to eat a bit more healthy so I thought oh do you know what I'm doing really great things for my body like I bet my body on the inside is just glowing um I would be incorrect there so the results showed that biologically I was 26 years old so three years older than my actual chronological age um so that was quite disappointing and I have actually I've written an article about that experience which you can access on technology networks um, it's called chronologically I'm 23 but biologically I'm 26. Um, so yeah that was one experience. The second experience that I underwent was with a company that just did, didn't look at the epigenetic side, just quite literally looked at my genetic code and they basically compartmentalise the test to look at various different aspects of life um, lifestyle factors. So I've actually got the data to hand with me so I can kind of give you a bit of an indication of what sort of information I could extract from it. So they looked at diet and lifestyle, um, sort of talents and sport performance, ancestry, my genetic blueprint, uh, family planning, early detection of certain disease risk genes, um, and also they looked at my drug response, so pharmacogenomics, so how my specific DNA code impacts how my body processes certain therapeutics and how certain therapeutics might impact me differently compared to other individuals. So basically the idea behind this is the company is looking at my genetic code, looking to see whether I have any specific variants. So in a very simplistic way of describing that, how little variations in my genome compared to sort of the general population um, impact sort of my molecular makeup and how my molecular makeup impacts with my lifestyle. So one of the things that actually came up um, was the fact that I carry a mutation, um, which some listeners might be familiar with, um, it's in a gene called the APOE4 gene. Uh, it's received quite a lot of research attention over recent years with its link to Alzheimer's disease. 
Um, so what the results showed was that I have a moderate risk compared to the general population of three times higher of developing Alzheimer's disease at some point in my life based on the fact that I carry this mutation. Um, so I think here it's important to say, obviously, I, I have a neuroscience degree, so my background is in neuroscience, so I understand perhaps more than someone that wouldn't have studied neuroscience what that exactly means for me. Um, however, that doesn't mean to say it wasn't any less um, scary, maybe a little bit intimidating, um, you know, mm -hmm. what, do you do, what do you do with that information? Um, so based on having undergone this experience, the company provides a phone call with a physician um, afterwards and you essentially run through your results. Um, and what I was basically told based on that concern that I had with regards to the Alzheimer's mutation was there isn't really that much I can do. Um, there are various sort of lifestyle changes that you can make that can battle against the risk of Alzheimer's disease. But obviously this is a disease that we don't actually know as much about it as maybe we sh we should by this time and you know there are very limited options for therapeutics for preventative measures so i was essentially told to eat healthy um you know practice essentially using my brain which i like to think that i do anyway um and try and live a healthy lifestyle but there weren't any specific sort of pieces of advice that were given to me as to anything that i can do to counteract that mutation. It's with Alzheimer's, of course, for our, our readers that aren't familiar, the the onset of this disease would not be seen in most individuals for for literally, you know, decades. Um, you know, this is something that is really a, a condition of of older age. So, I, I, what what do you do with information that isn't really relevant until you're you know sixty years older? Uh, it's hard to know what to do with it, right? Exactly. And of course, this podcast is called Opinionated Science. So I am going to express my personal opinion, which for me, do I regret undergoing this ever so slightly? Because I almost feel sometimes, as you say, if there is a disease where I cannot really do that much about it right now, ignorance is bliss. Because mm -hmm. there are very few things that I can sort of illicit control over with regards to that mutation it's there it's in me and I won't know the ramifications of that until later in life um does it keep me awake at night no but it's still something that's there and of course with the genetic mutation the thing that sort of first sprung to my mind was does this mean that my parents have it obviously they are older they are at later stages in life compared to me um if they carry this mutation then what does that mean for them, you know? Um, so it's it's a really tricky sort of thing to wrap your head around when you just receive these results in an email. Mm. With the call, Molly, because obviously you said that they gave you a, a follow-up call, was that like a compulsory call? Was that just up to you whether you decided to follow up on and have a call with a physician? It was optional. And I think it's important for me to say that um, this experience was gifted to me on the basis that I would sort of discuss my experience in a non-promotional way but just outlining exactly how the process works and what kind of results you can get. 
So the option to have a physician contact you with regards to the results, I think, please do not quote me on this, but I believe that you had to pay an extra amount of money for that. I could be incorrect, but I think it's something that if people are looking to undergo uh, direct consumer genetic testing, it's really important to take a look at that because, um, as I say, I have a scientific background, but if I hadn't, um, I might have got straight on the phone to my doctors and booked an appointment um, because it's it's scary, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As you mentioned briefly, it has potential ramifications beyond yourself. And Holly, I know you spoke in one of your pieces to Aneka Lukasen, uh, who's a professor of clinical genetics at Southampton University here in the UK. And, and you asked her about the duty of clinicians. This is back considering uh, clinical genetic testing, whether they have a duty to feed back that data to their participants in a in a study and also their participants' families. So what, what did she kind of touch on and, and what does she feel is the, the duty on clinicians to tell both people who've had the tests and also their families? I mean, in this circumstance, the duty of care is very similar to what you get across medicine, not just genomic medicine and genetic medicine. Um, so basically, if you think, if as, if as a physician, you think that it's going to cause more harm to not tell family members or genetic relatives that um, they're at risk of a particular disease. So if that's going to cause more harm than the person, the breaking the confidentiality of the person whose genetic information we're talking about, then you you should break that confidentiality, basically. But what she was saying is that, you know, once again, <laughs> as you find throughout this kind of stuff, is that it's very much on a case-by-case basis. Um, but there was, uh, I think I spoke about it briefly in this article, there was a case here in the UK um, where someone basically tried to sue the NHS because they didn't tell her about her father's Huntington's disease. Um, and, you know, clinicians are worried about that sort of thing. And, you know, that can tempt them not to break confidentiality. But what she's found from her research is that for the most part, members of the public and patients are actually perfectly willing for that information to be shared. So they don't necessarily mind in that context um, breaking confidentiality. I think to finish up, I'd like to talk about another kind of um, confidentiality now, even if uh, individuals aren't worried about doctors telling their families, for example, if uh, if they have a particular genetic result that affects them, I would imagine, again, opinionated science is my opinion, I don't have any data on this, but I imagine that it would be slightly more controversial if you ask people, would you be happy giving that genetic information to your employer? But that's exactly the topic of uh, two very interesting uh, pieces of legislation that have been uh, released in the US and Canada. So these are respectively uh, GINA in the, the US and the GNA in Canada. These are both genetic non-discrimination acts. And uh, GINA in particular is, I think, quite groundbreaking in hindsight because it came out in 2008. And for a bit of perspective, uh, 23andMe, one of the the biggest um, now direct-to-consumer testing companies, actually only was founded in 2006 and released its proprietary tests the following year. So it really was a, a piece of legislation ahead of its time. Uh, but the, the GNA in Canada, which came out um, much later in, in 2017, uh, was based around a similar idea that it should be illegal 
for individuals to be required to disclose their genetic test results to any uh, company or uh, for any for the access to any service or agreement um, for employment, housing, custody, custody, adoption, etc. I think this adds a, a whole different layer and, and one that perhaps here in the UK uh, isn't as relevant because we, as has been previously mentioned, have uh, a nationalised health service. But when, as, it, as is the case in North America, uh, a lot of people get their insurance and their ability to access healthcare through their employer, this is something which I think it, it's, it's very admirable that these countries have uh, been proactive with making sure that employers can access this information because um, someone briefly touched earlier on the um, Huntington's disease and, and the fact that uh, that individual was was very unhappy that her father's diagnosis hadn't, hadn't been um, touched on. But uh, in that article I, I mentioned, um, when I discussed the, the Canadian implementation of the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, I spoke to some Canadian clinicians who said that 40% uh, of the population in Canada of patients who are at the risk of Huntington's disease indicated that they experienced some kind of genetic discrimination, uh, most often in reference to getting access to a life insurance policy or disability insurance, but also across other domains. And they also talked about some other genetic conditions that, unlike Huntington's, are currently treatable. But uh, they were describing how people who went through very, very lengthy processes of trying to get help for a condition which they hadn't had diagnosed, which essentially reached the final hurdle of, you just need to go and get tested for it now and you'll you'll know whether you have this or not. And they were refusing at that point to actually get the test because they were worried how that data would be used. So it seems that although there is a, a, a more relaxed attitude amongst people to having their genetic information shared with their family and other individuals, it seems sensibly like there's a, a lot more reticence for, for people to have their information shared with companies. And I don't, did, did this come up at all, Holly, in, in your article research? Do you think that, that company access genetic data is something we need to worry about going forward? Yeah, so it is something that I discussed with Laura, actually, Laura Hertzscher. Um, And she was saying, you know, when Gina was first established in like 2008, even though obviously it was it was ahead of its time, it wasn't necessarily something that, people had to worry about quite so much because genetic testing wasn't quite so commonplace as it's becoming now um but she was saying that you know it's not necessarily something that we have to freak out about because you know we're, we're doing genetic testing more and more but it definitely calls for continued vigilance like people need to be aware of the possibilities because even though gina you know is a fantastic piece of legislation when you just look at it on the surface, like you said, there are loopholes. It doesn't apply to life or disability insurance. So I think it's something that people don't need to be. I mean, it, it depends on the on the individual situation. But yeah, definitely people need to continue to be vigilant about it. So I think one other thing we wanted to touch on, Molly, you were mentioning that 23andMe in particular had been using some of their genetic data in the battle against COVID. What, how has that been working? Yeah, definitely. So um, essentially, when a individual consents to providing their genetic data to 23andMe, they have the option to choose whether their data is um, essentially added to a bank of data that can then be used for research going forward. Um, so they made an announcement a couple of weeks ago now um, that they've been running a study 
essentially looking at how genetic variability might impact our susceptibility to COVID-19. Um, the study is still in its early phases and we do have some articles um, on the website at Technology Networks where we sort of discuss this in more detail. But I just think it's really interesting to, to sort of point out that whilst, you know, there can be some, ne some negative connotations to direct consumer genetic testing, um, it is essentially creating this huge bank of data that can be utilised to study, I mean, things such as this global pandemic, which is very important. Um, what the researchers have done is they have looked closer at individuals' um, genetic data. Obviously, customers are from across the globe, so you're getting quite a varied, wide population there. And they've looked to explore whether there is any sort of statistically significant genetic variants that might make an individual more or perhaps less likely to develop COVID-19. Because we do know, actually, from previous research that there are specific genetic variants that do in fact make you more susceptible to contracting an infectious disease. Um, so it's really useful data. Um, the only issue is ensuring that the populations are highly representative um, and making sure that actually we have to remember these are not proving causation, they are correlations. Um, but I do think it's very a very interesting area of research and something that I'm definitely looking to um, create some more content on on the site. I also think it's worth mentioning the fact that 23andMe also this year announced that they had sold the rights to a drug that they developed for inflammatory disease based on their customers' data. So more than 80% of customers had consented to their genetic data being used for research. And using this data, they have developed a new molecule drug, um, which can be now run in clinical trials by the pharmaceutical in, uh, company that purchased it. So really, really interesting area of, of genetics research. Yeah, absolutely. Holly, did you have any input on this from, from your background in articles? I mean, I think... I want to pick up on something that Molly said about representation and I think it's an issue that a lot of people take with some of these direct-to-consumer genomic testing companies in that people are paying to have these tests whereas something uh, like a project like the 100,000 Genomes Project for example with the NHS they will have tried to kind of make as diverse a population as possible um, and sort of taken people from all sorts of uh, areas of society um, but the trouble is with the kind of database that you're generating, although it might be large, you do have to consider factors like diversity. Then you also have to consider the quality of the data. Who's holding these people accountable for standards? Um, you know, whereas in the healthcare service, you might say, well, you have to prove something has to be this much statistically significant. Are, I mean, I, I don't know. This isn't my area of expertise in particular, but I, I think a lot of people, it's not my personal opinion, but a lot of people do question the quality and the accuracy of the data that these companies generate. Great, and that um, seems to be like to be a good place to finish up. So thank you all for joining me for this uh, really interesting discussion. It's, uh, it's a fascinating area and it does seem to be something that's just getting started in, in a lot of regards. So I'm sure we'll be able to revisit this in, in uh, a future podcast with any new updates we have but we'll be sharing all the links to the articles we've discussed in the podcast so you can take a read and uh, please wherever you're listening 
do share our podcast please subscribe and please give us your opinions don't keep them to yourselves thank you very much Bye.